Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I am Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Dr. Douglas Lippold, Chief Trade Economist at HSBC Global Research in London. He has also worked at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris and as an international economist with the U.S. Department of Labor in Washington, D.C. Doug Lippold, thanks so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to talk about the U.S.-European Union trade relationship and a potential U.S.-EU mini-deal that is reportedly in the works. But first, I want to set the stage for our listeners a little bit um, in talking about this vast trading relationship that we have. The U.S.-EU trade and investment relationship is the largest one in the world. The U.S. and EU are each other's largest trade and investment partners with about $1.1 trillion in annual two-way trade, according to the U.S. Trade Representative's office. Uh, and yet both U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Robert Lighthizer and EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan seem to agree that there are longstanding issues in this trading relationship that need to be addressed. Both of them have said so publicly. So I want to start by asking you a couple questions to set the stage One, what is the basis for such a robust trade and investment relationship between the U.S. and the EU, even in the absence of a bilateral free trade accord between the two entities so far? And secondly, what are some of the key long-running issues that both sides have said they need to resolve? Well, first of all, I mean, I think uh, the relationship between the EU and the U.S. or the EU's predecessors dates back to the period after um, World War II when both sides um, were looking to rebuild the uh, institutions governing the global economy to consider um, new approaches. Uh, And um, we had the experience of the uh, uh, near uh, completion of the International Trade Organization's mandate after World War II, um, and uh, in its stead, the evolution of the um, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade And through seven rounds of um, uh, negotiations, the U.S. and the EU, or the EU's predecessors, uh, um, worked together uh, to develop the system for uh, multilateral governance of trade. I guess what I'm getting at is uh, this collaboration is is longstanding um, in thinking about how to um, develop, develop a a liberal and open system for the um, uh, world's trading system um, governance. You know, this goes back uh, immediately after World War II, the special relationship between the UK and the US played a particular role in the foundation. This was broadened out as well to include Japan and Canada, the the so-called quad together with the US and the EU. So there's a certain amount of like-mindedness that's evolved over over decades. And to some extent, I think this actually, um, this, these key stakeholders were able to address some of their immediate concerns um, through this mechanism, through the GATT, to negotiate away or reduce tariffs that were a particular concern to either side. Um, this helped to build trust. And um, there's an element of um, like-mindedness in, in some areas of the economy, so that uh, a shared business culture um, and trust that evolved. So I think this was 
this um, evolution, this long-term evolution and collaboration has been uh, critical in building confidence um, and rapport and uh, openness in areas of mutual interest such that we can see this um, development of, um, uh, of trade and investment uh, in bilateral fashion um, in a manner that's worked to the mutual advantage, I, I, I would stress. And I think we see that in the, in the, the scale of the flows in both directions. Uh, the openness attained has been proceeding in a rules-based manner through these various waves of negotiations. And that has also helped to reduce the uncertainty in the conditions for doing business. And uh, together with uh, domestic and unilateral reforms, you know, these parties on both sides of the Atlantic, the US and EU, score very well in the World Bank doing business indicators. So it's domestic uh, reform that's been uh, mutually consulted in some cases. Um, as well as a reduction in tariffs and some non-tariff barriers. And uh, um, so businesses have taken advantage of that openness to build out their uh, presence on both sides of the Atlantic and uh, uh, in trade and investment. I think when it comes to um, uh, next steps, I mean, we've done better in liberalizing mutually um, uh, goods trade uh, than we have in services trade, there's getting more work to be done. Um, we've done better when we look at goods trade, we've done better with tariffs than we have with non-tariff barriers. And uh, therein, uh, in particular, uh, lies the rub for goods trade. Non-tariff barriers um, pose a particular challenge. Um, there's some differing approaches to um, uh, regulation that have emerged on both sides um, the EU uh, has uh, uh, taken a precautionary uh, practice with uh, respect to its um, development of regulation, health and safety and environmental regulation. So that has um, led them to err on the side of caution where there's not uh, a clear evidence of um, uh, their policy objectives being met in terms of safety, health and uh, environmental protection. The U.S. side has um, taken a, a more science-based approach from the get-go, uh, looking for, of course, safety and efficacy, um, but uh, tending to err on the side of more uh, a liberal approach. And so there's been some divergence in terms of non-tariff barriers um, and uh, uh, with the U.S. Uh, and the EU having to you know, now facing this uh, challenge in a, a number of areas, um, there's a further complication here, and that is uh, in terms of agricultural policy. If you look at the OECD's policy monitoring and evaluation reports, the OECD's indicators of state support for agriculture, there's been a different approach in the U.S. and in the EU. Um, the EU is using agricultural policy to hit a number of policy objectives. They have revised their approach to support for agriculture to include things like um, what they call cross-compliance um, uh, objectives, such as in the, with respect to environment, animal welfare, food safety. Um, and they've tied their support uh, in part to that. And they provide a much more generous level of support, something like 19% of uh, 
farm receipts uh, are associated with state support, whereas in the U.S. Um, there's been a, uh, an effort to remove distortion, um, uh, to um, decouple payments, um, and, re and uh, focus a big chunk of the supportment on income support for uh, food consumption in uh, um, low-income households. And uh, as a result, um, U.S. state support is averaging, according to the OECD, something like 10% of uh, farm receipts, so a um, much lower level of protection than we see in the EU. So these are some of the big challenges we have to figure out how to work through. I think it's going to take uh, dialogue. It's going to take um, efforts at uh, through dialogue to have convergence on internationally accepted standards. And we see this, it's worked to some extent with respect to food. We have the Codex Alimentarius uh, based through the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN that's provided a, um, uh, a basis for uh, shared standards and some products. And uh, that um, is facilitating trade to some extent. But of course, more can be done. Thanks for that, that background there, Doug including the, the longstanding shared interests of the U.S. and EU over decades, starting in that post-World War II period. I think that's important context to, to keep in mind here in this one. So I want to get to a little bit more recent history and just remind listeners how we got to where we are today with the potential U.S.-EU mini-deal, as some are calling it, um, that may be announced yet even this spring. There are longstanding tensions in the U.S. trading relationship, and you hinted a little bit at agriculture, and we'll come back to that. There's also more recent ones, such as the U.S. imposition of steel tariffs in 2018, which did apply to the EU and the resulting retaliation by the EU on U.S. products. And then there's the Trump administration's Section 232 investigation into imports of autos and automobiles parts and whether uh, they pose a threat to national security. And to deal with some of this, President Trump and then European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker announced back in July of 2018 the formation of an executive working group to work toward, quote, zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies on non-auto industrial goods, unquote. And that's an important qualifier there at the end, non-auto industrial goods. So what has that working group achieved um, to date a little over 18 months later here, would you say? Right. Well, we, I mean, <laughs> uh, for one thing, um, this group uh, uh, has promoted dialogue. So there, there has been ongoing dialogue, um, and uh, um, I think that's uh, absolutely critical um, uh, to resolution of the disputes. These technical discussions, some of these issues, um, uh, the points of uh, divergence, um, are remarkably complex, and it requires this technical level discussion to to um, uh, work through the challenges. I think um, there have been some concrete uh, results. Um, we had the um, uh, European Commission authorize the use of U.S. soybeans for biofuels um, uh, in uh, last year. Uh, that was uh, one achievement which the EU highlighted in its progress report. Uh, it's it's one-year-on progress report. Um, there were uh, other, I think, uh, benefits with respect to uh, the long-standing 
EU-US trade dispute over um, a beef trade, uh, in, part, in particular related to the use of hormones in, in the US and the EU views on that. Um, and that led uh, to the uh, um, mutual understanding that the EU would re, uh, revisit, review its uh, quota, its tariff rate quota access for U.S. beef into the EU market, uh, leading ultimately to a tariff rate quota for U.S. hormone-free beef that uh, will boost uh, trade over the over the um, seven years as it's phased in. And this is something that in the U.S. Trade Representatives Annual Report uh, the, uh, for 2020, uh, the report for 2019 and the trade policy agenda for 2020, uh, that recent publication issued on March, uh, February 28th, I guess it was, um, the uh, uh, USTR has highlighted that as a particular uh, achievement um, in the interest of U.S. Um, uh, beef producers. Um, and then there's a number of other um, that works in in progress as a consequence of this dialogue, and we'll see how this how this um, advances. There's cooperation on standards that's still under discussion. There's been some progress in uh, with respect to other products such as uh, uh, good manufacturing practices uh, with uh, for pharmaceutical products, and um, uh, recognition uh, that there's an that of this good manufacturing process approach to um, uh, via a mutual recognition agreement. Um, these are agreements whereby both sides come to uh, agree that a certain set of standards or testing facilities will be recognized as qualified um, to apply those standards for use in conformity assessment certification for bilateral trade. There's um, Already, I think seven of these MRAs that operate in various sectors between the U.S. and uh, the EU, and there's prospects um, to broaden that. There are things like uh, electromagnetic conformity uh, assessment, um, things like uh, pharmaceutical good manufacturing processes, uh, and well, a, a few others. There's more that could be done, I think, in the in, with respect to um, uh, trade in agricultural products, and uh, hopefully there'll be some progress in that as well as a consequence of, of this ongoing dialogue. So let me pick up on that point there with agricultural trade. You've mentioned this already. The negotiating objectives published by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office explicitly say that agriculture should be on the table in this negotiation, while the EU mandate explicitly excludes agriculture from this negotiation. So Let's talk a little bit more about that. Why Why is that? Why are the two sides so um, – why is there such a gulf between them on how they're viewing agricultural trade in the context of this negotiation? You talked a little about the precautionary principle being at odds with the U.S. science-based approach, so I suspect some of that is at the heart of this. But, but tell us a little bit more about why the two sides are in such different places when it comes to negotiating over agricultural trade. Right. I think – um, there's some there's there's a, a couple of fundamental points of divergence that um, um, that uh, have led to this. Um, I think there is an element, of course, there's a political element 
Um, in the EU, they're trying to bring along, um, now that the UK has exited, there's 27 uh, countries to, to bring along. Uh, so there's a broad range of interest, uh, and in some countries there's a strong uh, attachment to traditional, um, uh, the traditional agricultural economy. So uh, there is a challenge within the EU to hammer out a, uh, um, a open approach to, to agriculture. There is, as I mentioned before, the, the common agricultural policy that has uh, delivered a much higher level of uh, support for agriculture than the U.S. Uh, farm bills have in recent years. So that's one issue. A second issue is that um, the EU has established a policy for its new free trade agreements um, that uh, the counterparty uh, be a signatory and a participant in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Um, and, and that's seen as a precondition by the EU uh, for any deep or comprehensive, deep and comprehensive free trade agreement. So the U.S. exit from the Paris Agreement uh, in the eyes of some uh, European policymakers then means that there needs to be some sort of quid pro quo. So there, there's a, a further point, I think, to supplement here that um, the U.S. and the EU had a, a long-running negotiation in the hope of achieving a, a mega-regional trade agreement um, uh, in the years leading up to the Trump administration, that is, uh, so prior to the Trump administration coming into office, uh, for uh, a transatlantic trade and investment partnership. And uh, this was an ambitious agreement covering not only trade but also uh, in investment. It was intended to be comprehensive. And uh, this proved to be um, very challenging. Um, uh, if you look at the um, European Commission's public information on the conduct of the negotiations, um, it's clear that this was uh, very challenging for the EU with respect to the U.S. partners, um, uh, but also uh, within the European Union. There was a lot of um, uh, public discourse about the agreement um, uh, things such as the ability of U.S. investors to challenge uh, violations of the agreement that could potentially occur uh, on the European side. Um, so as a consequence, I think there is also a, a sense of caution on the part of the European authorities in this current round uh, as they set their mandate to narrow the scope and to not be over ambitious, overly ambitious in their objectives, to focus in on something uh, that was more readily attainable, uh, in particular uh, zeroing in on uh, tariffs uh, for, uh, with, uh, on reduction in tariffs or elimination of tariffs on industrial uh, products. So that, is, um, uh, that was a further element um, in the, in the uh, uh, defining of the EU's mandate for the, um, for the negotiations. I should add one other point on the U.S. side, and, and that is uh, one that's been a, a concern to me in my own uh, uh, research and, and writing, um, and that is that the U.S. has emphasized uh, in its objectives um, the goal of um, boosting employment and narrowing the trade deficit uh, with Europe, uh, alleging that there's an imbalance in the 
tariff in the tariff rates in the non-tariff barriers, um, and uh, that uh, this is a this uh, uh, difference in the trade regimes um, is uh, fueling the uh, continuation of the um, U.S. trade deficit. And actually, in uh, some of our uh, work where we've looked at this, and you take a step back. Um, to consider the macroeconomics of, um, of the U.S. economy, um, I think that we need to be careful here. Um, the, as I mentioned in the in the earlier question, the U.S. and the EU have negotiated down uh, tariffs through multiple rounds at, in the uh, General Agreement uh, on Tariffs and Trade, and uh, subsequently uh, in uh, some areas. Uh, via the WTO, there's been, a, uh, as part of the multilateral negotiations and plurilateral negotiations that have gone on. So tariff levels are mutually uh, quite low. They're in the low single digits for, on average, um, uh, for both the U.S. and the EU. And both sides have made uh, progress in improving the transparency of their regimes. Uh, for non-tariff barriers related to um, uh, uh, clearance of, of uh, goods um, into each other's economy. Now, there's more work to be done, but characterizing the trade protection in Europe as the driving factor in the U.S. trade deficit um, uh, could be challenged from a macroeconomic perspective. The reason is that the U.S. has a relatively low um, uh, savings rate. We consume a lot more of the GDP than uh, an average high-income economy. Uh, if you look at the U.S. Uh, uh, data for 2018, the U.S. Uh, consumption, household consumption, was about 68% of GDP. In a, high, a typical high-income country, it's actually um, lower. It's about uh, 60%. And the difference is partly um, uh, a much higher savings rate in many other advanced economies. Um, at the same time, the U.S. maintains uh, a, a relatively high level of investment in the national economy, and the difference is an inflow of um, capital from abroad into the U.S. economy, which fuels um, uh, consumption, a level of consumption and investment that uh, draws in imports. So the, the, the point here is simply that um, as we set these negotiating, as the EU and the U.S. set their negotiating objectives and mandates uh, in looking on how to handle this relationship, um, uh, the U.S. objective of reducing the trade deficit um, via liberalization of European import protection uh, may, not, uh, may not do the trick. Okay, so about three different things I want to pick up on there. So we'll take one at a time. <laughs> one is going back to your point about um, the political element here and the European Union needing to bring along 27 different member states uh, in terms of how they view agriculture in this negotiation and how difficult that can be. And agriculture seems to occupy a really special place in just about every economy um, around the world. And I think um, we see that here as well. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, is there anything that you think Americans and Europeans misperceive about each other's agricultural systems? I think that's something 
that might be useful for people to hear your perspective on here. Um, of course, I'm sitting in Nebraska, where the EU is the fourth largest export market for this state, and the top seven exports to the EU from Nebraska are all agriculture food related. Um, so it's top of mind here for people looking at this, understanding why agriculture may not be on the table. So is there is there anything you think each side or the citizens um, and residents of each side misperceive about each other's agricultural systems? Oh, I do. I, I think, um, um, uh, well, as we've been discussing in the U.S. side, I think there may be um, uh, uh, a misperception about the, the level of um, impediments to trade in Europe. Certainly, more progress can be made the, uh, uh, to improve transparency in the European um, uh, trade regime and to uh, liberalize um, and uh, perhaps do a better job of recognizing equivalence um, in uh, uh, regulatory regimes, even where the approach to regulation uh, differs. Um, uh, And uh, so I think the U.S., um, there could be, uh, there could be, um, uh, how shall I say, some misperception about that. Now, you know, I'm careful when I say that I recognize that the EU is providing a larger whack of support to its uh, agricultural economy than the U.S. does in terms of farm gate receipts. And, you know, there, is a, there, is, there are distortions to be tackled here, so I don't want to minimize that. But um, uh, sometimes I, I think that um, we lose sight of, um, of the openness and transparency that there is on the European side of the pond. Um, on the uh, in the other direction, European perceptions of the U.S. I think there's um, I think that there's some exaggerated uh, concern about um, uh, um, the U.S. regulatory approach to food safety, uh, and uh, um, uh, there's an underappreciation of the science basis for uh, some of the U.S. regulatory decisions, and I think. Um, that could also usefully be reconsidered uh, on the European side. Um, and uh, um, this is the kind of thing that needs to be tackled through um, dialogue. Uh, both of these issues are the kinds of things that need to be tackled through dialogue and, and raising public awareness on both sides uh, of the Atlantic, I think. Okay. And the second point I wanted to pick up on from your earlier comments are the importance of autos um, in this negotiation or the lack thereof of the appearance of these items um, on the table at this time. And so I I mentioned at the outset the Section 232 investigation that the Trump administration undertook to determine whether imports of autos and auto parts threatened to impair the national security. So that began in 2018. And then in 2019, that investigation concluded that these imports do, in fact, threaten to impair U.S. national security, although the administration's report on this has not been made public. Um, but auto trade is really important, as you know, to both sides here. The U.S. is the EU's most important export market for autos, and EU auto companies have a lot of major investments in the U.S. So how does this Section 232 investigation impact the negotiation that's going on now? Is it a negotiating tactic for leverage over the EU, or how do you see that playing in here? Well, um, I I hope not. Uh, <laughs> um we have um, 
the security exception in the WTO uh, uh, framework has not been heavily utilized for um, uh, for trade protection by WTO members. And there's a reason for that, that when you start invoking national security as a basis for trade protection, there's a real risk of having um, uh, arbitrary uh, unilateral decisions being taken. So the U.S. Um, recourse to Section 232, um, starting with the steel and aluminum uh, uh, tariffs in uh, March of um, of uh, 2018, and then followed by the uh, the uh, next steps with the auto uh, case under Section 232, um, raised some some real concerns for the conduct of international trade. It's it's a unilateral mechanism. Um, it's uh, pushing the tolerance in the WTO for um, the sovereignty and national decision making with respect to security issues. So it's increasing the uncertainty in, uh, in, uh, um, for, for parties engaged in trade in the sectors that have been, uh, that have been uh, targeted by the U.S. Um, in the Section 232 cases. I guess the other thing is that um, when we're talking about EU-U.S. trade, it's quite surprising to see um, uh, the U EU uh, countries covered by this Section 232 investigations, both autos and the aluminum and steel, that you have, um, uh, in, in for some of these countries, it means that the U.S. is reviewing uh, or viewing potentially you, um, NATO-packed allies, military-packed allies of the U.S. as security risk um, with respect to their supply of aluminum or steel or potentially autos. So that's, um, that's uh, um, added to the trade policy um, uncertainty, I think, um, in the, um, in the uh, multilateral environment. And it risks having other WTO members follow the um, uh, practices of the uh, largest trading nation, that is the U.S., uh, engaged, uh, uh, that the U.S. is uh, pursued, I should say. So with respect to autos, um, it's, it's also highly unusual that we have um, the report developed uh, according to the U.S. statute, the Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, and we have a report and a decision taken, um, uh, 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 and uh, the president ex exercising authority to find harm and uh, um, use that to launch negotiations, which is over a set time frame after the uh, after the finding, um, but then failing to respect the provision of the statute requiring publication of the report, um, uh, to have um, uh, statements issued in uh, October um, and November where um, there's an indication that the U.S. had been holding discussions about um, with EU automakers about the uh, about investment in the U.S. to build out their productive capacity in the U.S. Um, and saying that that was um, uh, um, helpful in addressing the U.S. concerns, but but um, uh, never issuing a formal uh, conclusion of the uh, case, having the deadline expire without the publication even of the report, 
that is the deadline for the period for negotiation following the president's finding um, last May. The deadline was in November of 2019. Um, so it's left this up in the air. Um, some legal scholars have looked at it and said, well, the passing of that deadline means that the authority to act under the Section 232 um, has probably expired and that um, uh, this would mean that you might have to restart the process if you wanted to take auto action under Section 232. So um, I'm not a, a legal scholar, let the uh, disclaimer be clear, um, but uh, it does raise uh, questions about um, what the next steps are in this auto case in particular. Okay, one more point there to follow up on, and that was something you mentioned earlier and I'd like to bring that out and, and note that U.S. Trade Representatives' um, negotiating objectives that the office published um, for this U.S.-EU negotiation clearly state that the U.S., quote, seeks to support higher-paying jobs in the United States, unquote, through increased trade and investment opportunities for the U.S. and the EU. So this is a bit of a bigger question, but how well do trade agreements do that in general, that is to say create jobs, and what are the prospects for such job creation in this case specifically? Right. I guess there's a, there's a fundamental point here, um, which is that uh, uh, trade, these trade agreements um, uh, generally don't lead to um, uh, net job creation in a significant manner. Um, uh, they, what they do is they tend to increase openness, tends to fuel uh, competition, and that drives um, the deployment of assets toward more productive pursuits. That is, if you're facing competition, you're focusing on what you can do best, where your productivity is the highest. And uh, new investment tends to pursue new opportunities that are unlocked from the increased openness that these deals can bring. So the uh, objective, in as far as it's focusing on uh, improved um, uh, uh, um, employment conditions, uh, it's, a, um, it's, a not a, it's a reasonable objective that as these assets are deployed, uh, and I mean capital, uh, being deployed toward more productive pursuits um, uh, and businesses are exposed to more competition, they respond by, um, uh, the more productive firms respond by trying to invest uh, in training, in building out their human capital and uh, um, uh, drawing in uh, talent. Um, and this increased productivity tends to be a channel for the payment of better wages. Um, uh, so uh, there is a tendency for this to, to, um, uh, to be the case. And um, uh, businesses that, that, that are able to boost their productivity they're reaping, um, uh, they're reaping the benefits from openness in two ways. One is they're drawing in competitive inputs from a global pool of suppliers or from the, the pool of suppliers covered by these trade agreements. So they're able to often to uh, improve their own competitiveness by drawing in these more competitive inputs and then to reap economies of scale on the other side selling into a larger addressable market. And that's giving them uh, power. It's giving them leverage uh, 
to really uh, grow their productivity. And uh, well, as I say, that's associated then with improved conditions of employment. And um, the I, I was at OECD um, in Paris work, uh, for a couple of decades, actually, and um, uh, there was a big study that we concluded uh, in 2011-2012. There were a series of working papers and then a publication um, can, uh, that called the. Um, it resulted in a publication called Policy Priority for Trade and Jobs, and this. Uh, we engaged uh, seven or eight um, international organizations in a combined effort. And uh, across a broad range of economies, we found this again and again to be the case, that increased openness was fueling this kind of employment transformation. Um, and I think uh, in the case of the U.S., we've already seen this uh, um, uh, with the uh, um, Although trade accounts for a relatively small share of employment directly, um, those jobs do tend to um, be better paid um, and to be associated with skill upgrading. Um, and uh, so the U.S. has already reaped benefits from the openness it's already achieved. And of course, it's a relatively open economy. But I do think there's more gains to be had in that department. Okay. So I'd like to ask a question then about the bigger context here. So the European Union recently concluded free trade agreements with Canada, Japan, and Vietnam, all major trading partners for the U.S. as well. Did these new agreements put the U.S. at a disadvantage in the EU market? And does that add any urgency for the U.S. to conclude this negotiation with the EU? Well, um, I would say... Um, these trade deals uh, are are um, potentially putting the U.S. at a disadvantage in some of these destination markets I mean, by uh, by pulling out of the comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership um, that had been negotiated uh, under the Obama administration or concluded under the Obama administration. Um, the uh, U.S. Uh, lost its preferential its potential uh, preferential access to markets such as um, Vietnam or, or Japan. Um, so there's some loss on that side in terms of the competition in the destination markets. And the U.S. partial trade agreement with Japan um, uh, does not, it, it's very narrow. It is a partial agreement focused in particular on a few agricultural sectors, beef and pork among them. Um, but it's not uh, it's it's uh, far less market opening than the CPTPP would have been. Uh, so that's one point. Um, in the EU market, uh, certainly there's some direct competition, um, in particular in industrial sectors um, uh, with uh, uh, an advanced economy such as Japan. The economic partnership agreement with Japan has given, uh, it's set Japan on a path to have um, uh, duty-free access for automotive trade going forward uh, after a phase-in period. Um, it's uh, providing preferential access for e to the EU market for Japanese um, the parts and component suppliers. So, uh, you, you know, there is some uh, disadvantage to the U.S. not having a comparable treatment, although, as I say, the tariff levels um, in most uh, 
uh, sectors of the EU um, economy are, are relatively low. Autos, they do tend to be higher, it's true. From, from motor vehicles, uh, we have a, a tariff of, of approximately 10%, and we've, for passenger vehicles, anyhow. And um, uh, parts as well tend to be mid-single digits. So, um, so there is a margin of um, advantage then for a supplier such as um, uh, Japan. Um, and actually, uh, Vietnam as well is growing its participation in uh, component supply. <clears throat> um, they started in uh, uh, motorcycles, and uh, but they're they're moving in and broadening uh, that into other aspects of uh, motor vehicles. Uh, so there's some potential there for competition from Vietnam. Now, where once that agreement is ratified um, later this year, it's expected the EU and Vietnam will have a, a preferential advantage. Uh, in their trade relations compared to the um, the U.S. with respect to tariffs, potentially some non-tariff barriers as well. One more question for you regarding this bigger context here, and I realize this next question is a is really a counterfactual, but I'm interested in your view on this um, with respect to U.S.-China trade tensions. You know, many people over the last 18 months or two years or so have critiqued the U.S. administration's unilateral go-it-alone approach to China as potentially damaging to U.S. alliances and arguing that instead the U.S. should have taken a multilateral approach toward pushing back on unfair Chinese trading practices. But building consensus does take time. And I wonder, do you think the European Commission sees this problem the same way or how hard or easy would it have been for the U.S. to act in concert with the EU on these trade tensions with China? Well, I think the European Union has faced uh, similar challenges in its relations with China. I think that, that there, there was and there remains potential for collaboration where the, uh, in, in addressing this problem between the U.S. and the, that is, the EU and the U.S. certainly have ample mutual interests here. You hear similar complaints from European multinational businesses, just as you, you hear these, whether you're in um, Paris or, or Milan or Frankfurt, just as you hear it in New York or Chicago or L.A. or wherever in the, the U.S. And I think the percept, there is a perception, there's a realism here. And we have this, you know, um, uh, Phil Hogan, the EU Trade Commissioner, was in Washington in January and, and uh, gave a very nice speech looking at this uh, and looking at a range of trade of mutual interest that the EU and the U.S. share, highlighting this, that some of these uh, challenges that businesses have faced in emerging market economies might be best addressed by having a, a, a um, aligned approach uh, from the advanced economies. But I think there's a will. There's a will to address this. And some of that we do see, of course, through the U.S.-EU-Japan trilateral. So there is that separate track there to tackle some of these problems with China in a different channel. As I ask every guest on this show, I'd like to know what you've read lately about trade, whether it's a book, article, reports, that's been particularly striking to you. Well, one, one uh, study that's caught my attention is a, a book by Craig von Grosteck. And it's entitled Trade and American Leadership. This book was published last year. I heard Craig presented at the LSE and subsequently uh, got a copy and dove in. And uh, it's interesting for me as a trade economist to, to uh, take a look at this because it's coming at it more from a, a, a political science or a political economy perspective. 
And uh, in a in a in a nutshell, I guess the the book is highlighting that U.S. leadership was an essential component to the emergence of the multilateral trading system uh, that we had. This rules-based approach um, that led to the creation, ultimately, of the um, of the WTO. The um, notion, this offer, that openness that openness could be extended, uh, including preferences for developing countries and uh, bilaterally, with um, even with uh, advanced economies. That this uh, openness it enabled not only the U.S. to prosper, but it also enabled our allies and more recently emerging markets to begin to catch up. It's almost a, a paradox that the U.S. economic power and strength that, that's helped to enforce, provide a, well, Craig at one point, he calls it U.S. hegemony, that's um, enabled the rules-based system that ser- the U.S. has served. I prefer to see it as the U.S. as a, as a guarantor for the system, that that has also um, enabled peers and emerging markets uh, to uh, prosper, which has, in a way, undermined the U.S. relative advantage. The U.S. has certainly prospered from this as well, but its relative position has been undermined. And it's, it's um, uh, how the system has helped to fuel the growth of, uh, of China in particular. And there's a, a, uh, an element of um, the rivalry that's come with that. And uh, it's challenging public uh, perceptions in the U.S. of um, the fairness of the system. If you see this increased openness in the U.S. and this process that I described earlier of the reallocation of capital, the, the, um, the shift in line with comparative advantage has left some regions, some uh, sectors disadvantaged in the U.S. and led to a, a measure of um, a breakdown in support. And uh, so I, I think um, Craig does an excellent job of providing an exposition of, of um, the evolution of this system, looking, you know, starting from Alexander Hamilton and carrying it forth, forward all the way to the arrival on the scene of the Trump administration. Um, and it's a, it's a useful reference. I dip back into it from time to time, uh, looking for a specific reference uh, um, to how we got where we are. And uh, I, one other point related to this, more recently, um, I did a little paper looking at, um, at advancing U.S. trade policy interests. While um, the U.S. Uh, recourse to protectionism in some areas, in some sectors, and unilateralism um, was done in part with these labor market objectives that we mentioned earlier in mind, we've actually seen in recent months some uh, deceleration in the growth of employment in the uh, manufacturing sector in the pace of employment growth in the manufacturing sector. We've seen we've seen a rise in trade policy uncertainty that's led it's been a, at least statistically associated with a decline in, in, in the pace of investment. We've seen uh, in recent quarters the pace of investment declining quarter-by-quarter uh, quarter basis in recent quarters. And I guess where I'm headed with this, though, is uh, it dawned on me as I was uh, taking stock of these um, developments 
as have other trade economists, by the way, so I'm not alone in this. Doug Irwin has done a piece, um, and uh, Mary Amity and others at the Fed have, Federal Reserve Board have taken a look at this. The point here is that there's a counter counterpart that I hadn't appreciated until uh, drafting this little paper, which is that the U.S. public perception of the fairness of trade has increased uh, substantially. And with the uh, renegotiation of the NAFTA agreement, replacing it with the USMCA, and now nearly ratified. We're waiting for Canada to complete the process in uh, April or May, hopefully. There's this public perception that uh, that uh, uh, there's better enforceability of labor provisions, that there's more stringent uh, protections uh, for environmental concerns. Gallup, according to a Gallup uh, poll, um, U.S. Uh, Popular, popular support um, for trade, seeing trade as an opportunity for ec economic growth, that's um, grown from a little from about 55% in 2013 to something like 75% of the population affirming that uh, trade is an opportunity for growth uh, in 2019. So my point here is um, that uh, I'm wondering if we might not see some political capital here that can be used to build down some of the protection. And if we, in the context of the EU-US um, bilateral negotiations, the US may be able to take a more ambitious approach to reducing protection, um, not only the unilateral measures, but also addressing some of the mutual concerns on remaining tariffs and uh, tackling non-tariff barriers, you know, capitalizing on this improved public perception of the benefits from trade in the U.S. Um, and that could be a positive outcome that, uh, from these uh, years of trade policy uncertainty and turbulence that have so taken aback uh, some participants uh, engaged in international trade in the U.S. and uh, among its partners. I think that's a really interesting point you just made there about public perception. Certainly, it's important to remember that it does have an impact. Perceptions do. Uh, and it's interesting to hear you say that the increased positive perceptions of trade may, in fact, provide an opening here to make the system even even better going forward. Thank you for that. And thank you for those reading recommendations. Doug Lippold, thanks so much for being on Trade Matters today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Bryce Duskett, Alex Wojcicki, and Brianne Wolf for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yeiterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Yeiter. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yeider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.